Brilliant. Well, to be labelled a judgmental person, I think is perhaps one of the worst things that any of us could face within the kind of culture that we live in. That's, you know, being open-minded is so kind of uh, prized in a sense. Now, if you were to add to that label, judgmental, the word hypocrite, then to put those two together, well, that's, that's pretty tops it all, doesn't it? To be called a judgmental hypocrite, woof, that would silence a room. One day I was on the tube this week, and uh, I was carrying uh, my guitar on my shoulders, and I had, uh, for a friend, I was carrying this little guitar up on Thursday uh, evening. And I was typical Victoria line, it was kind of you know, rush hour, you know it well, I'm sure. Absolutely rammed, and the doors opened, I was running, kind of, you know, I was going to get there on time, but it was close, and I thought, I've got to get on this one. There was a space, and you know how you kind of, you kind of look at those spaces, and you think, yeah, of course I can get in there. Absolutely no problem, I could have measured it out in my mind, I thought, yeah, guitar's going to go there, amp's going to go there, and I'm going to sort of slot in down there somewhere on the floor. And, and so I thought, right, I'm going to get in, and I did, I got in with the utmost of care. Because if you've ever been hit by a guitar amp, you really know about it. And so I, I sort of slotted things in, I got in, and just as I was about to get in fully, the, my guitar, which I'd taken off my shoulder, glanced, I mean glanced, a lady's hand that was on the, you know, one of those poles, one of, the, one of those uprights. Now, it's a noisy situation, isn't it, in a tube, but the tut of this woman could be heard throughout the whole of all the carriages, probably the whole way down the Victoria Line to Seven Sisters. It was, oh, you know, this outburst, this exhalation of, oh, who is this man to scrape my hand on? You know, it, was, it was pretty big, and then there was a few giggles around, and I thought, God, yeah, whatever it was. Now, a couple of stops later, she then needed to get out. And you would imagine, given you know, her very high standards which she placed upon me about getting in there, you would have thought she'd be the model uh, disembarking of a tube train. But there she was with her roller case, getting out, hitting everything that moved. So much so that one little child, she was about seven or eight, kind of got hit into her dad's arms. Now what was she? She was a judgmental, yeah, Hypocrite. Obviously, I'm trying to get over it still, but you know, <laughs> there we are. We see it all around us, don't we, all the time? And I'm sure we see it in ourselves. Probably we're not above reproach on that. And it's not very pretty, is it? I mean, we see it in the media. Just this week, Richard Scudamore, who's written a, couple, a few very sexist emails and has been lambasted by the press and the media. I'm not exonerating his emails at all. But it's interesting, isn't it? The very media who lambast him, who criticise him, published page three just right beside it. Max Clifford was very outspoken, wasn't he, about Jimmy Savile and others within the Utri investigation until he was found out. Judgmental hypocrisy. In politics, we see it all too often, don't we? The Guardian even released, recently published a column called Ten Political Hypocrites. Um, and one of the major ones of those, and there's a big, big, big article about it, was the former Prime Minister John Major. And he went uh, on a, during his reign, he, he said he went back to basics, he called it. Some of the uh, people in the, um, the Home Office here will remember that. And it was kind of pushing family values. The problem was, a number of his cabinet were having affairs. And then later he was found out to be having various liaisons, it was described, with Edwina Curry. 
High on that list was actually a lady called Diane Abbott, a very kind of prominent uh, Labour MP, who has been criticising private school education for the last 10 years or more. Very, very, very kind of you know, outspoken about it until her children got to 11. And then she felt, oh, I'll put them through private school. Judgmental hypocrisy. Uh, perhaps the worst place we see it is in, within the formal religion of the church in this country around the world. Of course, the abuse of the Catholic Church, both with the finances and with children, has been widely publicised. But of course, it's not just Catholics at all. Formal religion around the world has got a lot to answer for, and people have voted with their feet and with their money again and again and again. Judgmental hypocrisy is very ugly, isn't it? And therefore, the teaching from Jesus here in verse 36 through to verse 38 is really refreshing given that backdrop, isn't it? Let's have a look at it again if we can just remind ourselves uh, us of it. The reason I've um, read this uh, last verse of last week's reading is I think it's quite, quite a linking verse. Verse 36, be merciful just as your father is merciful. And then he goes on, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Given it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now before we dive into what some of those little phrases mean, let's just be very clear at the beginning, can we? It cannot mean that we're never to make a judgment about anything. None of us can practically live without making no judgments whatsoever. Can you imagine you're stood at your wardrobe in the morning... Do not make a judgment at that point. You wouldn't move all day. You wouldn't know what to wear, would you? You have to make a judgment. It's very obvious. You know, even Jesus tells us that, you know, who we're to listen to uh, you know, and how we're to listen to those people. And you can't do that without making a judgment about the people you're listening to. Likewise with false teachers. Jesus says, do not listen to the false teachers. How can you discern who the false teachers are without making a judgment about their teaching? Jesus is not saying, no, make no judgments at all. But secondly, Jesus can't be saying that there's no final judgment at all. Jesus in the previous section has just given us those woes which you looked at last week, warning us of the future judgment to come. So what is Jesus teaching here? Saying, you know, do not judge. He can't be saying, judge nothing. And he can't be saying, uh, there's no final judgment to come. Now, what he is teaching against here is that lack of forgiveness, lack of generosity towards people around us, towards other people. Or to put it in another way, he's warning us against judgmental hypocrisy. That unforgiving spirit that we see perhaps in us and those around us. So we come now to, I guess, the first point. It's summarised there, an encouragement to show mercy. And we see that in these first couple of verses. And this is Jesus' call to you and I to forgive and not to condemn, not to be judgmental like so many people around us. Why? Well, we'll see in a moment why, because there's great reward at the end of those verses, hence the picture of the grain. We'll come to that in a minute. But firstly, let's quickly understand each phrase as we go through them. There's four, there's four imperatives, four instructions. Look at them with me. Firstly, do not judge. Which essentially, what he's saying is that is to hold someone down as guilty. That's what it literally means. You're saying they're beyond God's reach. To, to use the little phrase, you're looking down your nose at them. 
You're sitting on your high horse, if you like. And the Pharisees are criticised by Jesus using the same word later on in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 18, verse 11 to 14. I don't know if you remember that little story. The Pharisees are saying, yeah, they're actually praying to God, thanking God that they're not as immoral as the tax, collect- the tax collectors. So parallel then with this first instruction is Jesus' second instruction, do not condemn. Now this is a little bit more final, if you like. You're declaring that someone's done. You're condemning it. You're saying, no, I can't deal with them anymore. And essentially, you're saying they pushed it too far. They're beyond the reaches of God. They're beyond God's grace, essentially. And both of these attitudes parallel together. They really should be taken together. A born of an attitude of self-righteousness. And what you're essentially doing, as you judge someone, as you condemn them, you're essentially taking God's role there. You're saying, I'm the ultimate judge. Now, this is why I wanted to go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Flip back there, page 315. Thank you. Flip back there. Because I wanted to give an illustration of this. Perhaps with the best example, if I can, if you can find one, from the Bible. Of this kind of judgmental hypocrisy. And it's the warning from, if you're like, one of the greatest men of Israel, that is King David. The story of chapter 11, if I can run through that very quickly, is is David, standing on the roof of his palace, looks down and sees this lovely lady in a bath. Bathsheba is her name. And and the story goes very quickly that he calls her, uh, they uh, they commit adultery. But in order to cover up his sin, he sends Bathsheba's husband to the front line, the the front line which he should have been uh, fighting on as the king. Sends her eye there, and he is murdered. He was killed. Uh, Now, David thinks he's completely got away with this. Uh, The rest of chapter 11, yes, there's a bit of mourning and so on, but he thinks, ah, yeah, I've got away scot-free. There's no kind of repercussions for what I've done this year. But then God sends Nathan the prophet Nathan, to David in chapter 12. And God has also revealed to Nathan what David has done. So Nathan tells the unsuspecting David a little story in chapter 12. And the story is of a poor man who had a little lamb. It was like a family pet. And at that moment, the reader should go, ah, it's that kind of picture. It's beautiful, it's sweet, it's, it's cuddly. It's, you know, he would come up to the table and, and eat from the table as well. And then Nathan goes on in the story to describe a rich man who then throws a big feast. And he takes the poor man's little lamb, ah, oh, the pet, and slaughters it. And puts it on his banquet table. And then if you turn to 2 Samuel 12, verse 5, look at David's response. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And Nathan said to David, verse 7, You are the man. You are the man. And David burns with anger there. But ironically, because he was seeing the same kind of sin that he had committed in someone else. He had that kind of judgmental, condemnatory spirit. He was saying, no, I'm going I'm to tell you what that man deserves. 
not knowing that he was the very man. And that is why, I don't know if you notice this in your workplaces, have you never noticed why very ambitious people um, always call um, their opponents over-ambitious? Have you ever seen that in the office place? Uh, and that's why liars love to tell uh, other people that they are liars. They call people liars. Why? Essentially to cover up. Judgmental, judgmental people think that it will lessen their own guilt if they judge and condemn other people. And what is it? It's just merciless. As opposed to God, who we'll see in a moment from verse 36. He's full of mercy. So let's look at the other two imperatives. Let's flip back to uh, Luke 6, and there's two other instructions which Jesus now calls his disciples uh, to uh, exemplify. So secondly, sorry, thirdly, he calls them to forgive. Third of the way through uh, verse 37. Now what is that? What is it to forgive? Now forgiveness is not to pretend that someone is innocent when they aren't. Rather it is to recognise their wrongdoing. It's to see it. It's to be able to articulate their wrongdoing. But then not hold it against them. A very big distinction. This isn't speaking of civil matters, by the way, or matters between us and God in an eternal kind of salvation perspective. This is a much more personal thing. Someone has wronged you, like we were talking about last week. They've gone in front of you in the Starbucks queue. They've wronged you. Forgive them, Jesus says. Forgive them. But Jesus goes further. Look at it. Give. At the beginning of verse 38. Give and it will be given to you. Here Jesus is calling a a big call towards us being generous with one another and other people. Rather than holding things back for ourselves, selfishly, whatever the person has done to you, give to them. Now these four instructions are a call from Jesus against this judgmental, unforgiving spirit. Disciples of Jesus ought to be known as those with this generosity of spirit to all people around us, whatever they have done, and mercy towards those who have wronged us. Martin Luther, when he was a great reformer back in 1523, when he summarised this section in his teaching, he put it this way, I think it was really helpful. Dost thou publish his sin? That's he speaking of the one who has wronged you. Dost thou, do you publish his sin. And if you do, he says this, then truly you are not a child of your merciful father. See, if you can't do these four instructions, if you can't not judge, not condemn, and, and you can't give and forgive, the suggestion here is that you're not a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. So quickly, let's look at two things which I I guess frame these instructions. Because that's quite hard when you look at my own life. I'm going, really, can I do all this the whole time? You know, so there's two things I think which frame these instructions. There's an incentive, but there's also a motive. And the incentive follows at the end. The incentive is to listen to Jesus here. And it's given through, the incentive is given through this illustration within the marketplace. I don't know if you've seen it, it comes in the form of a reward, the grain that runs over into your lap. And it's a picture of reward that is both rich, but also eternal. So go with me uh, to verse uh, 38, and you'll see that picture there. Uh, Sorry, verse 37. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. 
Now the picture here is what you used to have is a container in a marketplace and grain would be placed in about three quarters full to begin with. But then it would be shaken, so all the space within the container would get all the grain in as much as possible. You'd bang it down, so it would be a fair amount each time, a regular amount. And then they would fill it up right to the top, and even pouring over. But the point it was done, it was done over the lap. The garment of a, of a person buying at the market would be wrapped up like this to catch the grain. And then the container would be emptied, and they'd carry it home in the lap, in the lap, and then pour it out at home into a, whatever a receptacle or something. The point is, the picture here is of grain running over, of spilling over. It's of generosity, of more blessing, if you like. The non-judgmental, forgiving, generous person. The point is, is richly rewarded in this life through blessing from God and joy in God. And in the life to come. But we must be clear that this is not a way for us to try and earn our way to God. This is simply the expectation of a disciple of God. If you are a Christian, saved by the grace of God, you ought to be this kind of person. Non-judgmental. Forgiving. The incentive is there not to save us. Only Jesus Christ can save us through his blood and his death on the cross. But the incentive is clear. Look at the right at the end. For with the measure you use, if you forgive, if you're not judgmental, it will be measured to you. I, I summarise that point by saying, you will be judged by how you judge others. But we see what Jesus is commanding here is so radically different to your friends, to the world around us. It is so countercultural. But the, this agenda is made possible because we have a radically different, eternal agenda looking ahead of us. There will be eternal reward and blessing from God. It is overflowing, the picture shows us. So the incentive is there, okay? But there is also motivation here as well. And it's crucial we get this. And you may read these verses as I did you know, at the beginning of the week and go, really? I don't do that all the time. Have you this week been you know, at work and lack forgiveness? Have you been judgmental, condemnatory? Is that you? Because it's certainly been me at times. So how do we actually do this? What drives this sort of behaviour? And that's why I've asked um, the reader to read uh, verse 36 as well. Look at it. Go back with me if you can. It's so key to this whole passage, this whole section of Luke's Gospel. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. I heard someone describe this as just simply the engine of grace. It's only because God has been utterly merciful to us that we can ever consider living this kind of radical, countercultural way of living today. Verse 36, you see, is not a pep talk by God, by Jesus here to his disciples. What he's describing is a power. The mercy of God is not the divine carrot for our morality and how we live our lives. Though we ought to be motivated, of course, to, to will ourselves against judgmental hypocrisy. We should want to not be like that. But no, the power here is that we are to be merciful because our Heavenly Father has been merciful. And in his mercy, he has sent his Son to take all the justice our sins deserve. Our rebellion deserves. And that is his infinite mercy. But that is poured out then 
through the gift of his spirit. And as his spirit dwells in our hearts and works through the word, that is the power essentially that we can then live the following verses. I don't know about you, but as you look down at verse 37 and 38, do you worry, do not judge, do not condemn? Forgive and you'll be forgiven, give and it will be given to you. Do you think, but I really struggle? Well, you will. Unless you know God by a spirit in your hearts. The one who's shown mercy has given you everything you need to be this. Of course, Christ was not quick to judge those who judged him. He did not leap to condemn those who condemned him. Rather, he came to deal with our sin. He was merciful. Even on the cross, he showed compassion and forgiveness, where we, of course, most naturally would want to condemn and shout those, shout at those who had condemned us. I was actually in Oxford this week, as I was coming back um, from somewhere. I had a moment to go to the, the Martyr's Memorial. I don't know if you, if you ever go to Oxford, it's a great place to go. Um, it is the place where, uh, the famous spot where Ridley, uh, Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Cranmer were um, burnt at the stake on the order of Queen Mary back in the 1500s during the English Reformation. Now I guess many of us will know the famous words of Latimer and Ridley, they were bound together back to back and the flames came up and one of them burnt much quicker than the other. Uh, and Latimer called out to Master Ridley, he says, we shall this day, sorry, he said, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And those words are true today. But do you, do you know actually what the majority of the reformers were saying as they went to the stake to be burnt alive? There were 278 altogether. They weren't judging. It's interesting that, isn't it? They weren't condemning. They weren't shouting insults at those who were burning them. Even though... <laughs> As I was reading this week, actually, it's quite harrowing. Some of the children of the martyrs were actually forced to light the fires to kill their fathers. They did not condemn them. Rather, they prayed. And mainly psalms, and mainly particularly one psalm. And note this, that they weren't praying, if you like, for those people who were condemning them. They were praying for their own hearts, that they would not be the ones who condemned them. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. And the majority of the martyrs recited this as the flames rose. They cried out for mercy, knowing their heavenly Father is merciful. They didn't point the finger, they weren't judgmental, and they were a wonderful example of these verses. So you see, the engine of our non-judgmentalism is the one who showed us ultimate, infinite mercy. We, of course, need to be more like Christ. By looking to Christ, he's the great model and he gives us the power that we need to make these verses possible in our lives through his Holy Spirit. And he promises us to treat us as we treat others. That's the great reward of these verses, as we just looked at. He will not judge or condemn those who do not judge or condemn. He will forgive those who forgive others and give to those who give to others. That doesn't, again, mean that we're going to earn our way to heaven. But there is reward, there's blessing, there's joy. If we live out these verses tomorrow, if we follow Jesus. 
So first point, um, it's a longer point, an encouragement to show mercy so that we're not to be judgmental. But secondly, we'll see, there's a warning to listen to Jesus. Why? So that we won't be hypocritical. And we see that in verse 39 to 42. Let's go through that pretty quickly. It begins with this warning of a tiny parable in verse 39. Look at it. It's very obvious. Can a blind man lead a blind man? At that moment, it's meant to be comical. It's okay to laugh at times with the Bible. It's meant to have a sort of sense of, hey, really? No, of course not. Why not? Because they'll both fall into a pit. So firstly, be careful who guides you, Jesus is saying. And this is a story, and a number of these stories are stories of imitation, if you like. We all like to imitate our heroes, don't we? How many schoolboys started kicking a rugby ball like Johnny Wilkinson, you know, with that whole little crouching and his hands thing down, you know, after the World Cup? Look, Tim Webb's laughing because he does it, and I've seen him do it. You know, it's those things. As I grew up, I remember... My brother and I used to watch this extreme skier called Scott Schmidt. He was amazing, but everything he did was gnarly. I don't know why he used that term, but we then began to adopt that term in our vocabulary. Every mogul field we went down was gnarly. Every jump we did, gnarly. And so it was ridiculous, but you like to imitate your heroes. People imitate those they admire, what they wear, how they speak, even in their mannerisms as well, don't they? It's why people like Miley Cyrus, Beyonce and others like them have such a responsibility. Because if they dance in a particular way, if they wear a a certain amount of clothing, young girls will imitate them. I'm sure we all have at one time imitated someone in some way. You do it at work, I'm sure. Even Christian uh, kind of ministers and, and speakers do it too. People hear a certain way of communicating and seek to imitate that popular preacher or that popular kind of singer-songwriter at the front of church. Famously, a few years ago, Tim Keller, who's a leader of a very large church in North America, in New York, actually had to make kind of a public announcement, simply because it was against preachers copying word for word his sermons. People were trying to imitate him in such a way because they believed that if they would do so, then their churches would grow at the same rate his had grown. But he commentated in that, in that little kind of briefing, he said that one great preacher, pointing back about 150 years in American history, one preacher said this, the perception of the copyist is blind. He doesn't understand where the real source of power is. So he repeats some minor thing in an attempt to get his hero's greatness. See, the reality is that, that none of us will become a world-class rugby player just because we can bend down and put our hands like this. None of us are going to be a world-class seer just because we can say the word gnarly at the bottom of a mogul run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, none of us, uh, no young girl will become beautiful because of the shortness of her shorts and the cut of her hair. If you honour someone, if you truly admire someone, that is spiritually, more importantly, you look underneath the exterior, don't you? And you look at them as a person. That preacher that Tim Keller quoted actually said this, you actually insult a man when you imitate his mannerisms. You honour him when you love the truth that they live by and the truth they proclaim. See, this passage is littered with examples about teaching about imitation. And Jesus is nearing the end of his teaching of his disciples. And he's getting to right to the core of what it is to be a disciple. And he simply says, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Now the pit here... 
It was a mass grave, essentially. Literally, it's a mass grave. And the point is stark, isn't it? It's of one leading another to death. And we all imitate others. I think we're pretty happy with that. We all do it. And therefore the warning is we need to be very discerning. Very discerning. About who we will imitate. Again, it's a parallel message to that of verse 40. Look with me at that one if you can. It says, a student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Again, the point is, be careful who teaches you. Before the advent of uh, the internet, even of textbooks, someone who was a student of a teacher literally had one source of information, and that was the teacher himself. All the knowledge, all the wisdom would would be passed down from teacher to students. And essentially what they were taught, what they became was exactly the model of what their teacher was. And the point that Jesus is making here is this, is that we need to be very careful who teaches us. Because we become like our teachers. That's a sobering point, isn't it, for many of us, if we're involved in home groups, Sunday schools, even like speaking and teaching from the front here. Even in the small things, I'll give a trivial example, but multiply it up and you'll work it out. If you're continually late as a group leader for a meeting, what happens to the rest of your group? You know what happens, because you see it around you. It's a small trivial example, but that is what happens. If we lead, we must be very careful and responsible, but also we must be careful who we are led by. It's why recently, but very sadly, you know, Sean and Shelley and their kids had to leave, and they've, they've gone over to Perth, and they're flying over, I think, today or tomorrow. But what I've done with them and what they asked me to do for them, that is, investigate what, where they should, ought to be taught in Perth. I have a good friend who used to be an apprentice of mine who, who's now teaching in a church over there. And I'm thrilled that I've been able to email him this week and he's been able to email me back and we've copied Sean and Shelley in and they're going to be going next Sunday when they'll be able to land and so on. That is, there's a carefulness to who we ought to be taught by. That's what Jesus is instructing here. Thirdly, we're going to run through very quickly through these. Verse 41 and 42. Look at this one. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your, 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 your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I think the third warning here is simply to be careful of self-righteousness. Be careful of self-righteousness. The plank is, is actually literally a log or a beam. Again, we kind of play it down in our translation. It, the word is literally a beam that would be along a roof beam. It's huge, okay? Again, you can laugh. It's comical. Okay, imagine yourself with a dirty great big beam in your eye. That's how ridiculous the image is. Again, I was coming back from Oxford, as I mentioned. I jumped off the train at Paddington. I got some, you know how there's all the dust kind of flows up, doesn't it, when you get off a train. I got some in my eye. I jumped off, skipping along, didn't see a thing, hit a column, in Paddington Station, then hit a lady to my right, knocked her over. Oh, it was a great day. And you can imagine. <laughs> Something in your eye, though, means that you can't do anything. It's very distracting, isn't it? Multiply the image 
a thousand times and you get the plank. It's a huge thing. You can't do anything. It's disabling in a sense, isn't it? And Jesus warns his disciples here against their self-righteous, being so aware of the, the problems and the details of other people's lives and the failings that they're, they're not able to discern or examine their own. I'll give you some examples of how that might look in your lives and your hearts and my heart. Do you remember the expenses scandal of the MPs? It's now a year or so ago, wasn't it? I wonder how many of you and I here had conversations where we condemned them, when we were scathing of them. Now I wonder if there's any of us here that could really honestly say that we have never taken a pen from work, an envelope, put something on the credit card, you know, the work credit card that really ought not to have been there. We've slipped something in that, you know, they may not find out. I wonder, have we been able to examine the plank in our own eye before pointing at the speck in someone else's? I wonder as well, let me give you another example if you can. How many of us have made critical comments about people like Richard Scudamore, about his, you know, sexist emails this week, or, you know, Rolf Harris, or Stuart Hall? I wonder how many of us have pointed the finger and sort of, you know, been very critical, judgmental, condemning them for what they've done. I'm not trying to exonerate what they've done at all, but I wonder how many of us have condemned them and judged them. It was interesting, the same paper that reported Richard Scudamore this week also reported this. A friend of mine uh, wrote a little blog post about it. 77% of the total population of this country in the last week looked at pornography. And yet I wonder how many of us judged Richard Scudamore for writing a few emails. I mean, have you ever looked at a woman inappropriately, guys? Girls reciprocally as well. Do we need to examine our own plank before we point out the speck? Let me bring this all together as we close. Jesus is calling his disciples here to be generous-hearted, non-judgmental. The word literally in the old translations, and more literally, is, is magnanimous, actually, which comes from two Latin words, magnus, which means great, and animus, which means spirit. Jesus is calling us, us, his disciples, if you are one of Jesus' disciples today, to be great-spirited, great-souled, literally. Why? Well, firstly, because God is magnanimous, if you like. He's great-spirited towards us. It, one little commentator I was reading just said, you cannot outgive God. And he quoted, actually, the, the uh, owner of the Quaker Oats you know, kind of big company, who had, for the last you know, 30 years of his life, given away 60 to 70% of his income. And the comment that he made, he wasn't showing off about how much he'd given. He just said, I can never outgive God, because he just keeps giving back to me. God has been ultimately magnanimous and merciful to us. That's the first reason why he's calling us to be great-spirited. Secondly, the more we display his character, the more blessing becomes ours. It will be overflowing, hence the picture of the grain. And thirdly, the measure we show to others, the same measure 
is used for us. Let's not be judgmental, otherwise we will be judged. Let's forgive so that we will be forgiven. Let's give so things might be given to us by God. Joys, blessings in this life and eternally. A judgmental spirit often reflects a self-righteous, unreflective, insensitive heart. So let's pray that we will be, that we will be able to obey Jesus' words here. Especially verse 36, be merciful. That summary verse, be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Should we pray? Maybe just a moment of quiet to consider those times. I'm sure all of us have done this, where we have been judgmental, where we've condemned others, where we've been hypocritical in that as well. It's just a moment of quiet to ask for God's forgiveness so that we might forgive others as well.